Welcome back to our Hebrew study here, chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 6 today. We are going to break out of the first couple of verses, but we are going to start there just to talk about the last or final truth, uh, elementary truth being the laying on of hands. And this is what it says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. So I know we haven't done these in order, but as we look at this last one, I really want to challenge you to, you know, go outside of your cultural upbringing. Uh, most churches, I would say, really don't often practice the laying on of hands. Some churches might uh, overdo it, I don't know. But what we read here in Genesis chapter 48, verse 13, we're going to see about Jacob blessing Ephraim and Manasseh. And the laying on of hands is seen throughout the scriptures. It's not just a New Testament Holy Spirit thing. We read, And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and he brought them near him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said. And so, in other words, what's happening here is when Jacob is giving the blessing, he's called Israel here, he stretches out his right hand to lay it on Ephraim's head. Well, when Joseph brought his children before Jacob, he had placed them so that Jacob's right hand would naturally go on to Manasseh's head, the older. But instead, Jacob crosses his arms so that his right hand is on Ephraim, the younger son's head, and he is going to give Ephraim, the younger one, the greater blessing the firstborn blessing, even though he wasn't the firstborn. It goes on in verse 15. God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now what's wonderful to see here is they would be named after his name. Not just Jacob. Remember, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And therefore, these are going to be parts of the tribes of Israel. So the laying on of hands, when he placed his hands on their head, is how the blessing was transferred. And this blessing wasn't just words, it was something that would affect them for a lifetime. And not just the lifetime of that individual, but of their descendants as well. So a blessing, we don't really talk about that much anymore in our society. And, you know, when we die, passing on a blessing. Yet this is something that was common and done all 
the time. Today, it just seems like a blessing is just words without any true meaning. I want to take you to the New Testament. And we see here in Matthew chapter 19, verse 14, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for as of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. So note here that the laying on of hands was a blessing um, as well, even for these little children. Okay, it doesn't say a lot about their outside of Jesus is saying, let them come to me. So he lays his hands on them. That's a blessing. And he departed from there. It doesn't say anything more than that. But we know that he blessed those little children. And the, the people knew this, which is why they were bringing their children to Yeshua to be blessed. But that just kind of seems like a kind of in passing type of thing. However, I'm going to show you there's another context of laying on of hands beyond this. For this one, we're going to take you to Mark chapter 6, verse 4. Because in this case, we're going to see not just a blessing, but healing that goes on, a transference of power. It says, But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So there, it was clearly a healing that took place because of the laying on of hands. Likewise, we see in Luke chapter 4, verse 40, when the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. So, a different context. So when we think of laying on of hands, there's more than one result from that. Let's look in Luke chapter 13, verse 11, and we see something similar. Behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. So I believe that this is intentionally put in Scripture to teach us something, to show us something. That when Jesus was laying on of hands, there was a healing power that went on. And you're going to see that uh, Jesus was setting an example for what we should be doing. Let's look in Acts chapter 8, verse 9 for some other examples. It says, But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming he was something great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Continues in verse 13. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip, and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. In other words... 
the, the man that had amazed so many people with his sorceries is now amazed by Simon. It goes on in verse 14. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, remember, Samaritans were in Samaria, and these people were considered to be really ungodly non-Jews. And here, the Holy Spirit is being given to them in Samaria. Another great thing, you might remember the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay, That Samaritan was looked down upon. Well, anyway, the Samaria had received the word of God. They sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So this is a new context. Now, the laying on of hands is what caused the Holy Spirit to be received to those in Samaria. So, when one lays on their hands, something radical is about to happen. Some cases it was healing. Some cases the giving of the Holy Spirit. Some cases the transference of a blessing uh, from the Father on down. In this uh, context, we're continuing in verse 18 of chapter 8. When Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone of whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Well, this is a little scary, because obviously Simon, this Simon uh, the sorcerer, not Simon Peter, saw that through the laying on of the apostle Philip's in their other hands that this spirit was given, he's seeing this as a type of sorcery. He wants this because, remember, this is a guy who everybody looks up to. He wants this so that he can use it for his own gain. Well, we read in Acts chapter 19, verse 6, when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So here's another example, that the laying on of hands is where the Holy Spirit then came upon these people. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, with the laying on of hands of the eldership. So, not only are we seeing that it can give the Holy Spirit, we're told not to neglect this gift, if you have it, it's in you, because it was given to you by prophecy. Now, this is speaking to a specific person, of course. But the conduit of these gifts is the laying on of hands. So just because you lay hands on someone doesn't mean that it's going to happen you have to have that anointing. Okay, it's a gift that is given to you that, you know, was told by prophecy but came through the laying on of hands. And so you can't transfer something that you yourself don't already have. And I think that today in the church oftentimes we go about going willy-nilly, you know, laying on hands and doing all these kinds of things without 
that person having an anointing without the Lord really telling them to do this kind of thing. And so it is a gift, and it can be passed on to others. Now, by the way, uh, Simon the sorcerer there, when he was asking for that gift of the Holy Spirit so that he could have that gift, uh, he was rebuked for that. Because, again, his motives were wrong. He wanted to use it for selfish gain, not for God to get the glory. Well, in Numbers chapter 8, verse 10, it says, So you shall bring the Levites before the Lord, and the children of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. And Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord like a wave offering from the children of Israel, that they may perform the work of the Lord. So now here it is commanded and it was also used to commit people to the service of the Lord. So if they were going to begin their ministry, they laid hands on them, committing them to that specific ministry. So another context of it. Uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 6. Uh, we see that in Jerusalem here, some of them thought that their widows were being neglected. And um, in verse uh, 6 of chapter 6 here in Acts, it says, Whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread. So when they were uh, appointing seven men to take care of these widows, before they began this ministerial work, they laid hands on them. And what was the result? The word of God spreads. So they were commissioned by the laying on of hands. In Acts chapter 13, verse 2, Paul and Barnabas are sent out. And something similar here goes on. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. But one more time, like I said, you had to have the anointing to do this. That God has to tell you, notice it says, and the Holy Spirit said. That God had told them to separate Barnabas and Saul. And so they're simply following that command and laying hands on them to send them out, commissioning them to this uh, ministry. In Numbers 27, verse 18, and the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua and the son of Nun with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hands on him. Set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and inaugurate him in their sight, and you shall give some of your authority to him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. And he laid his hands on him and inaugurated him, just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. So here again, at the command of the Lord, Moses is told to lay his hands on Joshua to commission him to his ministry that he's going to do. And he literally transfers authority like a conduit. Now, at the end of this, we see explaining that Joshua had the spirit because of this event. Deuteronomy 34.9 says, now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. Why? It says, for Moses had laid his hands on him. 
So the spirit of wisdom came through the laying on of hands. This seems to be a very important doctrine that's called elementary again. Now, one of these very important elementary doctrines is one that seems to be ignored in many churches today as well. This should challenge uh, many churches to really study and search out this laying on of hands. In Leviticus 16, verse 21, this whole chapter is dedicated to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And that's where we see the ceremony of the, the two goats, where you know one was for the scapegoat, the other is to be a sacrificial goat, and the priest would lay his hands on them, basically transferring the sins of the people onto the goat. So now a completely different context where sin is transferred through the laying on of hands to this scapegoat. Here's what it says. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So we see a lot of different things happening with laying on of hands. But when we read about it in Hebrews as one of these elementary truths, the context seems to be the giving of the Spirit. Let's look at it here. Because in verse 4 it says, for, you know, he just says, all, don't neglect all of these, you know, elementary truths. And now he's saying, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So who is he talking about here? Well, clearly he's talking about the redeemed. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They have partook of the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. So this is huge. These people had the anointing. They had the Holy Spirit but they fell away. Now, many people don't believe this is possible today, maybe because it's just too real. They don't want to face the fact that they too could fall away. It's nice and easy to just think that, well, I'm, I'm in like Flynn. But they see a dispensation of grace and of grace only, especially many uh, of the, the Calvinist Reformed theologians they see that, you know, God has chosen you, you're saved, that's it. But here, clearly, there are people who have been anointed with the Spirit of God. They have the Spirit. That's what scriptures are saying. But they can fall away. And it says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. That is scary right there. Okay? We don't want this, hey, sleep tight, your salvation is locked in, because that's how we will grow um, lazy in our faith, lazy in the spirit, and we don't continue to seek after God. 
That's not a good thing. In Hebrews chapter 10, kind of skipping ahead a little bit just for the context here, in verse 26 it says, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth. So, meaning, you know God. You've received the truth of the gospel, but you continue to sin willfully? He says there is no longer a sacrifice for sins. Meaning, Jesus' sacrifice isn't for you, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. In other words, no heaven but hell. What we cover in this section is only one layer of this topic, and, and we will discuss more later, but passages like this are often ignored in church because they don't want to deal with it. So I think we need to dig into this a little bit and look at a second witness to this very thing. The, the exact same thing, but in, in different words, because we cannot use this kind of cheap grace as a, a get-out-of-jail-free card or a get-out-of-hell card because, hey, Jesus died for me, now I go live my life the way I want to. It's saying if you willfully continue to sin after you receive this knowledge, you don't have a sacrifice of sin. You only have an expectation of judgment. Let me show you what the Mishnah says here uh, in the Talmud. The Mishnah is going to attest as well that if you sin expecting cheap grace, you're not going to get it. You're not going to get grace. It says, if a person plans to sin and later repents, he is not given the opportunity to repent. If he intends to sin, relying on Yom Kippur to affect atonement, Yom Kippur will not affect atonement. In other words, he's saying, if you're going to live your life expecting, well, when the Day of Atonement comes, my sins will be wiped out, you're not going to receive the forgiveness of sins on that Day of Atonement. It's the same thing that we see in the Christian church today. People saying, well, I'm going to continue to live my life and watch these dirty jo uh, television shows and tell dirty jokes and let you know creative words come flying out of our mouths all the time because I'll ask for forgiveness at night. That is cheap grace. And what the rabbis were teaching is exactly what Hebrews said, that this is a perverse uh, doctrine, a perverse way of thinking. So when Christians see other Christians doing such things, we need to warn them. They shouldn't be doing this. They say, well, they're doing it so I can do it too, right? It's a bad example. Don't do this. Because not only are you affecting your possible eternity, you're affecting all those who are watching you, that are looking at you and thinking, well, if you can do it, you know, that's a pretty good Christian guy, and, and he's watching that show on television, so I guess I'm okay to do it as well. Don't do that. Don't use your uh, freedom as a license for sin. Let's go to Numbers chapter 15, verse 30, because even the Old Testament is consistent with what we see in Hebrews. It says, But the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he is a native-born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord, and he shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord, and has broken his commandment, 
that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. In other words, if you're going to do anything presumptuously, sinning willfully, you're going to be cut off from your people. Why? Because you've despised the word of the Lord. You've broken his commandments. Psalm 68, verse 21, But God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses. Now again, he's talking about people who know the Lord here. The hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses. Once we have been saved, if you continue to live in your sin willfully, I'm going to ask that maybe you need to go and examine yourself to see if you are truly in the faith. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 13 says, He who despises the word will be destroyed, but he who fears the commandment will be rewarded. If you're going to despise the word of God and his commands, you're going to be destroyed. Amos 2, verse 4, again, more consistency in the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. Their lies lead them astray, lies which their fathers followed. You know, our fathers, many of them, have taught us that, yeah, the commandments are obsolete and no longer necessary. We don't need them anymore. These are lies. This is something that the culture of our church has been teaching. And it's time for you to wake up and stop listening to the culture. Stop listening to your churches and listen to the word of God. Okay, if you throw away the Old Testament, you can twist Hebrews any way you want it to. But you see, the Old Testament is consistent with the New. And it's in the New Testament that we understand what the Old Testament was talking about. Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, it says, And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Make a choice, okay? Make a choice. He goes on, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Notice he doesn't just say we will believe, we will serve. It means to obey, to follow to recognize he's your master, and he gets to tell you how you get to live your life. You don't get to tell him how you're going to do it. Verse 19 goes on, But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions, nor your sins, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods. Then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. Notice, after he has done you good. God has blessed them, he has pulled them out, he has redeemed them, and he says, but if you will not uh, recognize him as your master, and you begin serving foreign gods, 
He is not going to forgive your sins. He's going to bring harm, not good. Joshua is basically describing the exact same context as what Hebrews mentioned there. That if you willfully live in sin, after you have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, shared in the Holy Spirit, if you do that, there is no grace for you. About Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 24, we once again see the same context as what we read in the book of Hebrews. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, note, it says this man is a righteous man, not, you know, an ungodly man, but one who is righteous, made right with God, justified by him. If he turns away from his righteousness, that sounds to me like you can fall away and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does. Shall he live? That's a rhetorical question there with an obvious answer of no. It goes on to say all the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered. So all the good works, all the things that he has done in the name of, of the Lord we're, we'll, they, they're not going to be remembered again because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed. Because of them, because of these sins, he shall die. Now, goes on in the next verse to say this, The way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair. You see, this is how Israel responded to that. It's like, well, that's not fair. That's not fair if I turn away from my righteousness that you're going to not forgive me. That's what the Israelites were saying. But God responds by saying, here, O Israel, listen. It's not my way, okay, that's unfair. It's my way that is fair and your ways that are unfair. These are the same kind of people that Hebrews 6 is talking about. They say things like, the Lord is just asking too much of me. We can't do this. This is too hard. This is too extreme. There's no way we can do this. There's no way any Christian can do that. Uh, I disagree. Again, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. You see, we can't be righteous by being good or good enough. We are righteous because of the blood of Christ. And I try and say this all the time, but anytime we talk about the law, everyone thinks that we're talking about works righteousness. No, that's not the case at all. What we're saying is, is that because we have been made righteous, because we have been redeemed, there is now an expectation for us to follow the one who redeemed us. It's very simple. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. Which temple are you? You see, clearly the scriptures are telling us here that you are the temple. The temple in which the Spirit of God lives. And if that Spirit lives in you, 
you are a believer. But if you defile it, defile that temple, you're going to be destroyed. This is not once saved, always saved, as he's talking to these believers, is it? This is once saved, you better follow him or else you will not be saved. Okay, you are the temple of God, but if anyone defiles the temple, God's going to destroy him because God is holy, and therefore the temple must be holy. Hebrews 10, verse 26 says again, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but certain uh, fearful expectation of judgment. I went back to this because I want you to note that word, willfully. Willfully sin. So if you have a sin that you are embracing, you better let go of it now. Everybody sins. There's no man who doesn't sin. And so again, just to reiterate, I am not saying that you have to be perfect to be a Christian and to get to heaven. What I'm saying is that if you have an attitude in your heart that you turn your your deaf ear to the law of God, even your prayers will be detestable to God, as Proverbs 28 verse 5 tells us. If you willfully live in sin when you have become a believer in Yeshua, then no sacrifice for sins is left. You will sin, but it should be an unwillful thing, something that causes you to, to just be frustrated and go to God and repent and confess that sin and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I hate this sin. Even Paul said, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. He says, the good that I want to do, I do not do, and that which I hate, I keep on doing. So I'm not saying you have to be perfect, but you had better hate your sin. That's what I'm saying. In verse 28 here of Hebrews 10, just continuing on, it says, Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing? and insulted the Spirit of grace. Do you see that? Keep in mind, we're in the New Testament. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses in the Old Testament died without mercy. But then it says here in verse 29, how much worse punishment. In other words, now that you have received the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you reject the law of Moses, how much worse punishment do you expect to get? Because you're trampling on the blood. You're trampling on the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. You're saying, well, you know, it's no big deal. Thank you, Jesus. I appreciate you forgiving me. Now let me go live my life. You reject the law of Moses under the new covenant of grace. It's even worse than in the Old Testament. You die without mercy. By, by the way, another word for mercy is Jesus. Because you trample Jesus' work 
that he did on that cross for you. And if you do that, the punishment will be even greater. Well, let's go back to our text here, Hebrews 6, 4, just to kind of put this all together again. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So this is a very serious thing, and this should be something that every Christian should say, boy, I do not want to fall away from God. I do not want to trample on the sacrifice that he made for me. I want to meditate on that. I want to give thanks, and I want to respond to that. Let's look at this willful sin a little more. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them, bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Notice it doesn't say there might be some false prophets that are going to sneak into your church. He says there will be. And they're going to secretly bring in destructive heresies, meaning it's not going to be obvious. It's going to be uh, clever, disguised, like the angel disguises, uh, the devil disguises himself as an angel of light. Jude also warns us, for certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who do what? Turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. You see what false prophets are going to do? Jude is saying the same thing Peter is. Just a few extra details here. That the heresy is turning God's grace into cheap grace. Okay, These false prophets, that's what they do. They lead people astray by saying, Oh, it's okay. You're a Christian. Jesus loves you. He's going to forgive you. Don't worry about it. You don't need to feel any guilt. You don't need to repent of your sins. You just need to go live your life. Be blessed and be happy. No. It sounds exactly like what's going on in the world today, doesn't it? Most churches, I think, exercise cheap grace. And yet, this is exactly what Peter and Jude have warned, that people are these false prophets will creep in unnoticed, secretly, changing the grace of God for a license to sin. 2 Peter 2, verse 2 says, And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. So these false prophets, many will follow the destructive ways. I think that's why we see the churches behaving the way they do, why they've rejected the law of God, because we have followed so many destructive heresies. Because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Because the way of truth, Jesus Christ, will be trampled on, his sacrifice treated as if it was nothing. In verse 18 of 2 Peter, it goes on to say, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually excuse me, escaped from those who live in error, while they promise them liberty 
They themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. So how are these destructive heresies coming in? It says they speak great swelling words, words that the flesh is attracted to, things that the flesh desires. Yeah, go ahead and do this. Go ahead and, and sing these songs for you to make you feel better because your emotions uh, like these songs. I know that it really doesn't talk about God, but hey, it's great. You love it. Okay, All kinds of examples that we could look at. And it goes on, like I said in verse 19 there, while they promise them liberty. Oh, you're saved. Don't worry about it. You're saved. They themselves are slaves of corruption. In other words, they continue living in sin. Even though they've been promised this liberty, he's saying they don't have it. They're in bondage. See, many will follow. So it's going to be a majority. That means basically... That's what we're seeing in the church today, isn't it? So, verse 18, just to recap, shows how they do it by alluring the flesh. Tell people what they want to hear. That is what you do for a seeker-sensitive church. That's why we see so many churches taking surveys to see what would you like to see in the church. Because it doesn't matter what you want in the church. What matters is what you need. They will strip us of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. No, you don't, you don't have to stop living that life. It's okay. You don't have to stop that job or quit that job because it's so ungodly. Oh, oh, oh that's all right. You don't have to obey that because, yeah, that's, that's too hard to follow. I understand. Yeah, that's what a false prophet will tell you. Okay? And don't forget, they will promise you liberty. Oh, you're just fine. It's okay, but in so doing, they're putting you in bondage, bondage to sin. Jeremiah 7, verse 8, Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you don't know? And then... Come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We're delivered to do all these abominations. This is exactly what Peter was saying. That they would come to church and say, Hey, we're delivered, we're saved, we're free, and then do whatever they wanted and go about all these abominations. Because, hey, I'm saved. Look at the divorce rate in the churches today. Because we're free in Christ. Yeah. Uh, we could go on and on. Things that the churches are practicing today that the Word of God clearly speaks against. How about creation and evolution? Well, I believe in evolution because God could have done this. Well, I don't care what God could have done. How about what God said He did? Let alone all the science that shows evolution is not true. But yet people will follow these false prophets that are even in the churches, these so-called godly men turning people away, leading them astray by saying that, you know, God used evolution as his way of creating things. I won't get into all of that. You know, in our creation ministry, we've got all kinds of materials that will speak against that, but that's just another example. 
Let's look here at 2 Peter 2 in verse 20. It says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again tangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. In other words, after they've escaped the pollutions of the world, after they've been righteous, after they are saved, and then they go back and are entangled by these cares of the world again, he says the, the state that they're in will be worse than it was the first time before they even began. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness, it says, than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. So these people clearly were saved, but they turned from the commandments. Notice that. It says to turn from the holy commandments delivered to them. Does that sound like people in the church today? People who have seemed to have escaped this world, that they have the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but they're still entangled in the world, that they are ignoring the commandments, the holy commandments, turning away from them? Well, this is telling us they're in bad shape, worse off than they were before they even knew the Lord. By the way, the writer here is taking us to Proverbs chapter 26, when he says, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit. Do you know how gross it is to watch that? Have you ever watched a dog do that? It's disgusting. And this is the kind of picture God wants you to have in your mind when you have a believer coming to know the Lord Jesus and then going back to his sin, back to his vomit and eating it. That's the picture he wants you to have in your mind. And again, we're in the New Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 15. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people, because their cry has come to me. You see, this is a living example of what we've been talking about. There are all kinds of parallels to King Saul in our lives today. Saul was called by God, just as we are drawn you know, to Jesus by the Father. It's a supernatural calling. Saul was called to be king and save the Lord's people. We have been called by God. We are a kingdom of priests, and we are to, uh, by the Great Commission, go and teach, baptizing, and, uh, you know, spreading the gospel. Well, this is what happens as we continue in our story in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. Samuel took a flask of oil, and he poured it on his head, kissed him, and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? Verse 10, when they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet them. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. So in chapter 10, what we see here is Samuel gives credit to God 
for anointing him. Not Samuel himself. He gives credit to God. He says, is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander? Even though Samuel is doing it, Samuel's just carrying out God's command. Now, in verse 10, we see he had a second anointing of the Spirit by God as well. Okay, it says, when they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied. So this is a real thing. It is of God. This is not a sham. This is a legitimate anointing, a legitimate Spirit of God that came upon him. In other words, Saul would be classified as a true anointed believer, anointed by God himself. Not Samuel. You can't say this was man's anointing. So, we've now established Saul is a believer. But when we go to chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, look what happens. Samuel said, what have you done? Now, the context here is they, Samuel told him to wait for him to arrive before he would attack the Philistines. Well, Saul got nervous, and uh, he offered a sacrifice himself and attacked early. And also, rather than destroying everything and all the Amalekites, what ends up happening is he keeps some and disobeys God's commands. So it says, Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattered from me, that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, The Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. I'll tell you, the words, therefore, I felt, speaks volumes. Volumes. Because he's following his heart. Recently, I was just talking to a young lady telling me about how her heart was causing her to, you know, feel this and to go this direction and to do this. And I, I told her, don't follow the heart. The heart is deceitful and wicked beyond cure. Who can understand it? The Bible says, do not lean on your own understanding. You follow the word of God. The word of God came to Samuel and Samuel gave it to Saul saying, don't attack until I come. And Saul disobeys because he felt you see, the problem is following feelings of our flesh will always mislead you. How many times do we make decisions after our own heart due to pressure? Pressure of what people will think, pressure of being scared, maybe even for our own life. That was the case here in, in Saul's. He was worried. He says, the Philistines are going to come upon me now. And so I've got to do this. Let me tell you something, the Lord will bring you to the brink before he steps in because he's testing you. You do not follow your feelings, your experiences, your emotions. They will always lead you astray. And frankly, I think that's why we have so many people going astray in the charismatic churches today, that they are following a false spirit, a false spirit. Uh, miracles and wonders, signs, things of speaking in tongues that are not of the Spirit of God, but of a different spirit, a kundalini spirit. 
following things that are not biblical, but they make them feel good. And if it feels good, it must be of God. No, that's exactly how the devil works. He wants to give you things that you think are going to be, you know, great for you. It'll feel good. It'll taste good. It is going to give you things. That's exactly what Satan did in the Garden of Eden. Oh, you're not going to die. So when Eve sees that it's good for food, it's pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she eats. She followed her heart, her flesh. Continuing on here in 1 Samuel 13, verse 13, it says, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord will have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Okay, the Lord would have established his kingdom forever, but because of his disobedience, because he broke the commandments, he won't. Samuel publicly rebukes him, telling him that he was to destroy all the Amalekites, even the animals. But Saul kept the animals, breaking the commandment of God. A couple of chapters later in 1 Samuel 15, verse 10, Jumping ahead there, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. That word regret, it's the same word used that God uses, I should say, before the flood when he said that he was sorry that he had made man. Anytime you see that word regret, it's always followed by judgment. And so when it says that God's saying, I greatly regret, you know something bad is about to happen. Always. Check it out. Well, what does it mean to turn back? Saul, has, he says, I am grieved. I've set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me. In other words, from following my commandments. He has not performed my commandments. That is exactly what Hebrews was talking about. That's exactly what Peter was talking about. A dog returning to his vomit. Saul knew the Lord, was anointed by God, and he turned back. He turned back to the ways of the world, and he disobeyed God's commands. He returned to his vomit, and the result was God was going to leave him. Samuel grieves all night long. That's amazing to me. This is the kind of heart we should have. When we have leaders who are ungodly, who turn away from the Lord, it should grieve us. We should have this kind of heart for the lost, the kind that would leave 99 to go get the one. In verse 13 of Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, it says this then. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Well, Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. 
for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we've utterly destroyed. This is just like those who say, well, Lord, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. Well, these people are delusional, just like Saul was. Saul knew he had broken the commandments, but what he does is he tries to justify himself. He twists reality to say, well, well we saved these so that we could sacrifice them to the Lord. That's, that's why we did this. I did it for the Lord. Like these people, Lord, Lord, we cast out demons for you in your name. And he says, away from me, you worker of iniquity. A lawless person, a man who does not keep the commandments of God. Such a sad story. It continues in verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Verse 17, so Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? So once again, we see that he had a humble heart at one time. Okay, very humble. And it was God again that anointed him, not Samuel. Verse 19 says, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. Amalek, I've destroyed utterly the Amalekites. So once again, a second time, we see Saul trying to justify himself, saying, well, I did obey. I did. You see, this is the problem in the churches today. We're claiming to be Christians, following Christianity, but we make all kinds of excuses for our disobedience. Abortion, creation, homosexuality. I mean, the list could go on and on of the excuses that we try to do because of disobedience. Or, say, but I did obey. I am obeying God. I'm following him but they're following him the way they want to follow him. Not the way God told them to, but the way we desire. You know, I can't help but bring up Christmas as an example. Again, I'm not saying that you're a sinner to, to celebrate Christmas or celebrate Jesus' birth, but there's no question historically, biblically, or any other way that Christmas is a pagan holiday that was Christianized it's celebrated on December 25th because this is the day of the sun, when the days get longer. It's when the sun god, Ra, was worshipped. It's when Zeus was worshipped. It's when Mithras was worshipped. And God gave us a perfect celebration in his festivals, the Lord's festivals, to celebrate his birth, his death, his resurrection, all of it. But we say, well, we are obeying God. We are celebrating him on the day we want to, in the way we want to, by using pagan rituals and symbols. You know, the Christmas wreath. I'll be honest, I, I, I can't stand the wreaths. I have a friend of mine who is a believer in Jesus now, and she used to be a witch. Do you know that when she became a believer, one of the hardest things that she just couldn't understand is why Christians would have a wreath on their door at Christmas? Because a wreath was something they used in Wiccan. 
in, in witchcraft. And, and that's where the wreath has its origins. Where in the Bible do you see that? It's not there because it comes from a pagan religion. But you see, we as a church have decided that we get to make the rules of how we're going to worship God, when we want to worship Him, and, you know, what is right and what is wrong. We don't need God's commandments to tell us what is right and what is wrong. My heart will tell me that. That's the attitude that we have. Church, it's time to wake up. It's time to, to get away, uh, get rid of all the culture in our upbringing and go to the Word of God and ask ourselves, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we worship on Sunday? Well, a lot of people say, well, that's when the Lord rose from the dead and all of this. Well, guys, go look up the first day of the week when you in Scripture. Go check it out in the Greek. Any computer can do this. It says on, an, on one Sabbath, proto-sabbaton. Okay. We know, his, history tells us, the Catholic Church and their doctrines tell us that the Catholic Church changed the day of worship to Sunday. They even see it as a sign of their authority. So why do we worship on Sunday? Not because the Bible told us to do it, but because the traditions of man, because of a Catholic church. That's why we do. Um, we have other messages on the Sabbath that will historically show you this, biblically show you this. That's not the topic of this message, but it's a perfect example of what we see Saul doing. I am obeying but the way that he wanted to obey, not the way God told him to. Let's go on here in these verses in verse 22. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great, has the Lord as, as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. You see, it's better to obey God than for you to go worship God in the way you want to. Because our disobedience is like that of witchcraft. He says in verse 23, For rebellion, not obeying God's commands, is as the sin of witchcraft. Stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Guys, this is an abomination. That's how serious this is. It is better for you to obey than to think you're sacrificing to God by worshiping Him in ways that your heart dictates, in ways that your traditions dictate, in ways that your church uh, theology dictates. You reject His word, He's going to reject you. That's what happened here to Saul. It goes on in verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Fear of people is a powerful motivator, isn't it? But you know what? I think we should fear God more than we fear people. Galatians 1.10 says, If I should yet seek to please men, I should not be a servant of Christ. Do you know why a lot of people will not give up their traditional way of worshiping God? They're afraid of what people are going to think of them. The fear of people. Verse 25 says, Now therefore please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. 
See, Saul is now still concerned about what the people think. Please pardon my sin, forgive me, and return with me that I may worship the Lord with you. How do I know that he's worried about the people? Because verse 26 says, But Samuel said to Saul, I'll not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Well, as it goes on, we see he just, well, just come back with me so that the people can see. Saul is asking Samuel for forgiveness. Why is he asking Samuel? Why not go to the Lord? You see, it wasn't Samuel he sinned against, it was the Lord. But he was still so concerned what the people would think more than what God thought of him. Do you know Samuel never saw him again until the time of his death, the scriptures say. Saul even had to go to the witch of Endor to talk to Samuel. A dog returning to his vomit. That is the picture we get from Saul. Don't let the fear of man cause you to reject the commandments and the word of God. Search those scriptures. Challenge yourself into looking and asking yourself, why do I do what I do? Where is this in the Bible? Well, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 15 says this, but by mercy shall not but my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from you before you. This is speaking of David. Okay, Saul died in his sin. Because the scriptures say God took his mercy away from Saul. But to David, he says, your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Don't let what Saul, what happened to Saul happen to you. Because as Hebrews 6, 4 said, it's impossible for those who have been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, been partakers of the Spirit of God, tasted the good word and the powers of the coming age, that if they fall away, it's impossible to renew them again. This is Saul. Is this really saying that if we fall away, it's too late? Well, it depends on you if you choose to walk away from God's word or if you choose to walk towards it. Something we all need to take to heart. Both Saul and David were called. Both Saul and David were anointed by God. Both Saul and David prophesied. And both fell after being anointed. Samuel refused to seek repentance from the Lord. David did though. David said, I have sinned against you, Lord, when he sinned and fell with uh, killing Uriah and sleeping with Bathsheba. And David was saved. Why? Repentance. When Saul was rebuked, he made excuses. When David was rebuked by the prophet Nathan, he was broken. Will you guys take this word? Will you take it to heart? And will you be broken enough to go to God and say, Lord, I am sorry that I have not followed your word. That's the difference. It depends on you. You can either walk away from God's word or you'll move towards it. Psalm 38.4 says, For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me.
My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long, for my loins are full of inflammation and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. David tells us what sin did to him. He didn't say, oh, it's fine, I'm saved, it'll be okay. He didn't say to Nathan, oh, please just go, uh, you know, come with me so that the people can see that everything's okay. David, in his sin, this is his prayer. My iniquities have gone over my head. It's like a heavy burden, too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering. He was broken. He was disgusted about his sin, not willfully sinning. I know I'm going a little long here. I'm just about done. Jeremiah 8.12 says, Were they ashamed when they had committed abominations? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. In the time of their punishment they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Do you blush over sin? Do you blush with all the the uh, soft pornography that we see even on commercials today? Or are you just under cheap grace? They shall be cast down, those who do. Those who are under cheap grace. Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See, confession, repentance, brings forgiveness. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. See, we need not try to cover our sins because we just take them to Jesus in confession and let him cover them. That's why confession is important. David's sin, by the way, was murder, and he was forgiven. So don't think that your sin is too great and there's no hope for you. There is nothing that you could have done ever that God is not willing through his son Jesus Christ to have his blood not just cover, but wipe away from your life. And then he has even given you a Holy Spirit who will empower you to walk in the light from here on out. And when you do fail, to pick you up knowing that you have become a saint in Christ Jesus. Last verse, 1 Kings 15 verse 5 says, Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he had commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. This is the kind of life that repentance leads to. That even though David was a murderer, look what it says, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Let me tell you something. God can say that about you because of Jesus Christ. As long as you're not willfully living in sin, that you haven't trampled on the blood of Jesus, treating it as if it was something cheap, something simple, something of little value, then his grace is for you. Don't be like those 
where no sacrifice for sins is left because they continue to live in sin after becoming a believer. We'll close on that. Again, I apologize for going long, but hopefully it was worth the time. Next week we'll pick up uh, looking at verses uh, 4 through 8 next week.